I want to do something with you this evening that is honest um, and I guess comes in a sense out of my something of my own con- confusion because uh, I often get confused and I guess you probably do too that we don't always own up to it. So I, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen and I want you to tell me what you think is, is wrong with the picture. Is anybody awake out there? Well, what do you think is wrong with that picture? It's a physical impossibility, isn't it? It's, so it's a, it's a kind of a, a visual paradox, isn't that right? It, it just, it isn't, it isn't possible. But you have to look at it twice to, to really work out what's going on there. Well, a, a paradox is a statement which attracts attention because it seems to be contradictory. I don't know if when you were at school you had to read that book, Animal Farm, but I I had to read it, and it says in the start of that book, all men are equal, but some are more equal than others. Well, how can that be true if all men are equal? How can some be more equal than others? That's a paradox, isn't it? It kind of doesn't make sense to us. And one of the objections to the Bible that you may very well come across from time to time is that the Bible is full of contradictions. I have a twin brother, and uh, he doesn't know the Lord, sadly. Uh, Many times over the years, he said, I wish I had a faith like yours. And I always say, well, God is incredibly gracious and and very generous, so so why don't you ask him for faith? Because he loves to give people faith. And uh, if that's you, well, he, he would love to give you some faith as well. But my brother says the Bible is full of contradictions, and I then say to him, well, would you like to point some of them out to me? And of course, he's never read it, so he can't point out the contradictions. But there are no contradictions in the Bible that I can find. However, there are paradoxes that don't always seem to make sense. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul writes about himself and others and he says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And I want to know, how can you have nothing and yet possess everything? Kind of doesn't make sense, does it? It's embarrassing to say that there's a bit of the Bible that doesn't make sense because it seems to be contradictory Something of a paradox. Paradoxes attract our attention, challenge our faith, and provoke us to think and to ask questions. And it's always good to ask questions. It's never wrong to ask questions. Jesus asked a question when he was on the cross, didn't he? So when we come to a bit of the Bible that we don't quite know what it means, it's a good thing to ask questions. Now, G.K. Chesterton Uh, defines a paradox as truth standing on its head to gain attention. Truth standing on its head to gain attention. So I want to look this evening with you at one paradox. Now please understand that a deepening understanding of God's truth will help us to grow in our faith. And as we grow in our faith, we get to know God better. That's a real motivation, isn't it, for digging into the truth. So turn with me in your Bibles, and we're going to read Psalm 2 together, because there's one paradox in one verse that I want us to 
uh, just think about this evening. Psalm 2, wonderful psalm, starts off, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I sometimes wonder, does God look down and laugh at this militant secularism that seems to be engulfing Scotland? I wonder. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now look again at verse 11 because there it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And that's a paradox. How can you rejoice when you're fearful? How can you rejoice when you're fearful? It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So we have fear and joy side by side. And yet, that's something of a paradox. Because we don't understand how fear and joy can live side by side. When we came to believe... Surely we were excited. But when we come to a paradox, it's a little bit like that road sign that says stop. Don't go forward. Don't turn left. Don't turn right. You can't go backwards. So what are we to do when we come to a piece of scripture that we don't understand and that really puzzles us? Well, uh, that's a really good question. When you and I came to faith in Jesus, we probably couldn't stop talking about it. I don't know about you, but as a young Christian, I got really excited by what I was discovering in the Bible. And I used to wander around our house at home with an open Bible, wanting to catch a brother or sister to share something that I'd discovered and never seen before, because I never read the Bible until I was a 18 and a half, 19 or something. And uh, they used to see me coming, and they used to kind of go out of the, jump out of the window to avoid me. It was a bit like the Keystone Cops. It was quite strange. But there you go. When you come to know Jesus, uh, you get very excited and you discover truths in the Bible, which is just tremendous. And the Holy Spirit helps us. And it's marvelous. We begin to pray and we say, God, if you want me to do this, would you make a big Y in the clouds? And I'll know you're saying yes. And you go outside and you look up and there's a big Y in the clouds. And it's wonderful, and you think it's never going to change, but God only does that once for us. Why does he only do it once? Because he wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. He wants us to learn to trust him. And if we spend our time looking into the clouds to see him spell out our directions, or if we want him to send us an email every Sunday morning so that we might know what we have to do all through the week, 
That takes the trust element away from it. And we have to walk by faith. And the outworking of faith is trust, isn't it? And trust involves sometimes standing in that place where we're going to be in big trouble if God doesn't turn up. But when we're seeking to walk with him, he always turns up. He never lets us down. Faith grows through testing. He kind of takes our faith and he pulls it to stretch it, to make it a little bit bigger. And every time he does that, internally we're saying, ow, that hurts. But the more he stretches our faith, the more we discover that trusting him is no risk at all. Trusting God is no risk at all. And it has to be said that sometimes we stuff up, don't we? And we make mistakes. The man who never made a mistake never made anything at all. Sometimes we don't only make mistakes, sometimes we're deliberately disobedient. Because that's just the way we are. And when we're disobedient to God, we uh, confess and then we pray, as David did in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now please understand that there is an enemy out there, and he doesn't like the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only way he has of getting at Christ is by having a go at us. The wonderful truth is that he who lives in us is more powerful than he who lives in the world. And it's really good to hold on to that. But the enemy doesn't want us to uh, be joyful, so we read that he's the accuser of the brethren, but he accuses the Baptists just as well, and the Presbyterians. He just accuses us. That's what he likes to do. He wants to discourage us. He wants the memory of our sins to trouble us. And he wants us to worry about the consequences. So when he tempts us, he sits on our shoulders and he whispers into our ear, don't worry, nobody's going to know. Oh, you're going to have a wonderful time. You're going to get away with it. But if we listen to him and we sin, then he sits on the same shoulder and he shouts, you'll never get away with this. You're awful. How could you ever say that you love God? And he really uh, makes it difficult for us. And when we're in that position and we're listening to him and we shouldn't listen to him, the fear of the Lord moves in and we begin to wonder if the Father will chasten us and we become so fearful that we wonder, could God ever love us or love people like us? And we look in the mirror and truthfully, we don't like what we see. And we think, how could God love somebody like me? And yet we know so little of God. Because God does love us, and there is nothing about us that takes him by surprise. Even those deep, dark thoughts that we never share with anybody else. He sees, and he knows. And, and he knew before Jesus died on the cross for us. His love for us is far greater than we can ever really understand. And yet the truth is, life for many of us is a little bit like a roller coaster. Sometimes we go to church service and there's a great sermon and, and, and we're all excited and praising God and then Monday comes and it's downhill again. Life's a little bit like that for us. Do you know there are only two constants in the whole of, 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 of the universe? One is God, 
He's perfect, and because he's perfect, he can never become anything less than perfect. And the other one is the enemy, and he is so bad, he can never become anything other than bad. But we're somewhere in the middle. We're going up and down like yo-yos, like the roller coaster of life. But that's not the way God wants us to be. So let's just unpack this a little bit and think about, first of all, the joy of the Lord. Now we remember that Jesus was described as a man of sorrow. Isn't that right? But that's not the only description we have of Jesus. In John 15 and verse 11, Jesus said, I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So the Lord Jesus is looking at us this evening and he wants his joy to be in us and he wants that joy to be complete. That's rather lovely. So as God's much-loved children, we are blessed with his joy, which doesn't depend on the things that this world offers. Now somebody has said that happiness depends on happenings, that happiness depends on happenings. And if things are going well for us, we're happy. If circumstances change, we experience unhappiness, and as a consequence, we sometimes are given to complaining. I have a pastor friend who one day was at the back of the church and somebody came to him and said, Pastor, the Lord has given me the gift of, of criticism. <laughs> and, uh, my pastor friend said, Whoa! Before you say anything, just open your Bible and show me where it talks about the gift of criticism. And of course it doesn't. And yet sometimes we're given to that, aren't we? Sometimes we're given to that. The joy of the Lord is something completely different than happiness. People who don't believe in Jesus experience happiness. Uh, you may have seen cartoons in the newspaper. There's as happiness as a cappuccino. But is it really happiness a cappuccino? What if you don't drink coffee? Or here's another one. Happiness is just, happiness is just one more pair of shoes. I, don't know if Imelda Marcos found that to be so. She never seemed to have enough pairs of shoes. And then there's another one. Happiness is annoying your sister. I kind of like that one because I had a sister, an older sister, Elizabeth. We used to call her Bossy Bessie. Uh, happiness is annoying your sister. But is it, is it really happiness? And then there was another one here. Happiness is eating whatever I want and not putting on weight. Oh, man. Would that make you happy? <laughs> happiness. Uh, only those who, ex who believe in Jesus, who know him as their Savior and Lord, experience the joy of the Lord. We can only experience the joy of the Lord if he is our Lord. You see, when he's our Lord, the Holy Spirit gets to work within us. And what does he do with us? He grows fruit, doesn't he? And look at the segments of the fruit. Love, joy, peace. Wonderful. Patience, kindness. Love comes first, but out of love comes joy. So if you don't have love, then you can't have joy. And if you don't have love and joy, then you can't have peace, because they're all interlinked rather beautifully. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, we read these lovely words, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's really important that we have joy and no joy, because this joy is our strength. Now, do you remember... Jesus taught the parable of the lost uh, sheep and the lost uh, coin. We heard about that this morning. And of the lost son, helplessly lost and hopelessly lost. 
but, but they were found. And there was tremendous rejoicing. And what happens when somebody in Hamilton Baptist comes to meet Jesus and comes to experience salvation and comes to know what it is to believe? Well, why there is rejoicing in heaven. Luke tells us, I tell you, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. I think it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that when somebody comes to faith, that kind of heaven throws a party. They're all excited because the glory that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ as the church grows. How wonderful that is. What rejoicing. Joy, of course, is shared with others. We have a shepherd who cares for us. And if anybody has reason to rejoice, surely it's Christians. Isn't that true? We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We, we know joy because we know Jesus. And not only do we rejoice in what the Lord has done for us, we rejoice because God has given us the privilege of telling other people about Jesus. That's not a privilege that is, that's extended to the angels. But we get to share our faith with those who don't believe. And we know that whenever we, sh we sow God's word, we have the promise of a harvest. And what will it be like in glory? Now, I know that when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. We're going to get new bodies. I'm going to be slimmer in glory. And maybe a bit taller. I don't know about you. We're not, the bodies aren't described for us. I, I sometimes wonder, do we have elbows in heaven? But just imagine when we are in heaven and we're standing there before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, and there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people there. And we're looking at Jesus and we are utterly captivated by his beauty. We look at him and we just marvel at his face. And our hearts are filled full of praise. We're overflowing. And all of a sudden, while we're just looking at him captivated, we feel this little nudge in our side we have a side and it's an elbow if we have an elbow and we tear our eyes away from the face of Jesus and there's somebody there and we vaguely recognize them and they say do you remember me and we, we, we were tempted to tear our eyes back to Jesus and and we said well yeah yeah and they said, you, you told me about Jesus you told, and I'm here because you told me about Jesus. And, and, and look at all these folks I've brought with me. What will it be? Won't our hearts be filled with joy? I had a phone call a little while ago, two weeks ago, I think it was, from a fellow in Northern Ireland. My lovely wife, when we were at college, she was a year ahead of me. Before we got married, she said, you're scruffy. And she said, I've got some money, I'm going to buy you a suit so you can have something to go away from our wedding in. So that's what we did. She took me down to Bangor and uh, we went uh, uh, around all the gents' clothes shops and we got into one. And this really nice guy started to sell us a suit and we began to share our faith with him. And he gave us a great discount. So that's a pretty good thing to remember. We shared our faith with him. Anyway, my wife, uh, she graduated and she and I were interviewed during the graduation service. And it was a big service, lots of people there. And there was an elder from Hamilton Road Baptist Church in Bangor. And uh, 
he went home thinking, we've had the principal of the Bap- from Baptist College down to preach. It's about time we had somebody from that other college. So they asked me to go down to preach on Easter Sunday. And I was so wet behind the ears, it never occurred to me to preach on the resurrection. Nobody told me about that. So I preached on the Song of Solomon, because in Jesus' day, you had to be 35 before you were allowed to read it, which was a big thing. So, Song of Solomon. Phenomenal book. So I went down and I preached for 50 minutes. But the funny thing was that while I stood up to preach, there in the front row, there was this guy, and he was giving his wife his elbow, saying, I sold that fellow that suit. (laughs) And how wonderful it was. We went to that church to employed by them for a couple of years, assisting a vacancy. And we saw that guy, Jimmy, come to faith. I started a meeting in an old folks home and then Jimmy uh, got involved in it and he phoned me, as I say, two weeks ago and he said, I knew he had cancer, but he told me that he'd just given up doing the meeting in the nursing home. He said, the last meeting I did, there was a lady visiting somebody in the nursing home and she listened to the message and she came to faith. And he says, she meets me occasionally around the town now. And she says, you turned my life upside down. And Jimmy says, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And then she said that some of her family had come to faith. And I said, Jimmy, it is the most wonderful privilege to point somebody to Jesus, but it's even more wonderful when somebody you pointed to Jesus points other people to Jesus. Jimmy, you have spiritual grandchildren. That means I've got spiritual great-grandchildren. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know why I digress to tell you that, but there you go. Uh, What a wonderful uh, thing it is to be able to look forward to glory. Because God uses what we do for his glory. So we love to think about joy, but what about the fear of the Lord? Because we have joy and fear together in that text. What about the fear of the Lord? Well, this is a reverent respect that's born out of a knowledge of the character of God. The better we know him, the more we shall want to please him. In the spiritual life, joy without fear can be shallow and careless. While fear without joy can just paralyze us. There has to be a balance between the two. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So worship God acceptably with reverence and fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So how can we worship God acceptably? Well, most of us learn fairly early in life from our parents that when they issue instructions to us, it's rather wise not only to listen to the instructions, but to put them into practice. My mother had a slipper, and occasionally she applied the uh, (coughs) slipper of instruction to the seat of learning. And... uh, Uh, I learned that it was a a wise thing to obey. 
It's wise to listen and wise to put into practice. So respect for authority opens the door to effective learning. Now we read of the early church in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 9, verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. That's very interesting. They enjoyed a time of peace. And how did they enjoy a time of peace? Why did they enjoy a time of peace? Well, God was with them. But it tells us that they were living in the fear of the Lord. And Paul is quite blunt in his assessment of the sinful world in which he lived and in which we live. In Romans he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And why is it like that? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And is that not true? The folks who live around when we seek to share our faith with them, many of them, no fear of God, don't care whether God exists or doesn't exist. The fear of the Christian is not, will God hurt me? The fear of the Christian is, am I going to hurt God? And I love my wife. And the last thing I want to do is to offend her. How much more then should we fear to offend God? We started off looking, um, oh, rather Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. uh, And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We started off by looking at verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So we've noted that there is joy and fear together and it appears to be a paradox. So how do we work it out? Well, I think that we need to put them together, the joy and the fear, and we need to think about the joyful fear of the Lord, the joyful fear of the Lord. Because actually joy and fear are friends. We often find joy and fear uh, together in the scriptures. When Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he did so from a Roman prison cell. And yet his theme was joy. His theme was joy. He mentions joy six times and five times he tells the folks, the readers, to rejoice. And yet he writes in chapter 2 and verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. So how do we balance the fear and the joy? Well, he says in verse 18, For as I've often told you before and now tell you again even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. How do we balance the fear and the joy? Well, we must know the word. We must trust the word. We must dig into the word. There are jewels here to be discovered. But you know they don't lie on the surface. They're wedged in between the lines. And if you want to get the jewels, you've got to dig a little bit. 
That means you don't speed read it. You stop and you ask questions. Questions like who, why, what, when, where and how. What's going on here? Is there an instruction to obey? Something to do? Is this relevant for me today? How is it relevant? It's good to ask questions. To understand. We must know the word. We must trust the word. We must yield daily to the Holy Spirit. And the Bible's full of stories of people who experience joyful fear. Think about Abraham and Isaac when God wanted to test him and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, and I want you to take him up a mountain and I want you to put him on an altar and I want you to kill him and offer him up to me. How do you think he felt? Now the test wasn't for God because God knew everything. The test was for Abraham's benefit. We read that he got up early in the morning and he left, and I don't know why he got up early in the morning. Could it have been that he didn't want Sarah to know what was going on? I don't know. But he set out early and he walked with Isaac. And Isaac said, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, Dad, but but what are we going to offer? Where's the offering? And he said, son, God will provide. And you remember the story. Climbing up the mountain, leaving the servants behind, building the altar. And Isaac saying, well, where's the offering? And Abraham saying, son, you're the offering. I wonder, did, did he attempt to run away? I don't think so. Oh, the fear in his heart at that, at that time. But God had a plan. Our Lord Jesus himself demonstrates the balance between the joy of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. At the transfiguration, Jesus was radiant with heavenly glory while discussing with Moses and Elijah his impending death on the cross. And sometimes we like to think about the cross and we like to wonder What it was like. Did the soldiers take Jesus? Did they throw him roughly to the ground? Did they take the hammer and brutally drive the nails through his hands and feet with with practiced efficiency? We think about his back and we wonder as the flagellum had, had whipped it, had it ripped away chunks of flesh, was bone exposed and sinew. We think about those things. Yet Matthew simply says when they had crucified him. You see, however awful the physical suffering of Jesus was, it pales into insignificance when placed alongside the pain that he went through, when he who knew no sin became sin for us. We can't understand that. It was so awful that he cried out, Eloi, 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 lama my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in a way that we can't understand, God the Father moved away. Because God the Father cannot abide the presence of sin. How much pain did that cause within the Trinity? And yet we read of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despising its shame. Oh, he had fear, but there was also joy 
a balance of fear and joy. We see that balance demonstrated in the disciples' lives. They were persecuted brutally, but they kept on seeking to glorify God, daily devoting themselves to the word of God and to prayer. They took their stand for the truth of God. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he defines a Christian as someone who shares the sufferings of God in this world. That's the life that God has called us to. Suffering is in the cup that we have to drink. But joyful fear is certainly a paradox, but it's not an impossibility. So when we put the joy, joy and fear together, perhaps we would say, blessed are the balanced. Blessed are those who know that this life is just for a short time. Eternity is forever. And though we have questions, and we do have questions, and we are confused, we worship a God who isn't confused. A God who knows what he's doing. A God who doesn't always explain himself to us. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think organized the crucifixion? Do you think it was the devil? It wasn't. It was God the Father. It was God the Father who organized for those rough, tough, brutal soldiers to crucify Jesus. And he organized that because of the outcomes that would be a blessing and a benefit to those of us who follow Jesus. And Jesus went through all of that, finding a balance of fear and joy. And as we go through our lives, yes, we may very well have suffering. Because we all die at some stage. Death is an enemy. So what do we do? We're cast back on what we know of the character of God. God is too wise ever to make any mistakes. He's too gracious ever to be unkind. And when there is a shortfall in our understanding, we bring it to him and we place it at the foot of the cross. We say, God, I don't understand, but I know that you love me. And I love you, Lord. And I pray that you'd help me to find that balance between fear and joy that keeps me hungering and thirsting after you. Despite the ups and the downs that we experience day by day. A paradox. There are lots of them. I hope you'll find some. And when I am weak, then I am strong. There's another one for you. There are lots of them. Look at them because they're filled with riches which, if we mine, will bless us. So I'm going to pray for you. The scripture says, or the tenor of the scripture says, blessed are the balanced. And it would be so good for the Lord to help us to find that balance in our own lives. That we might walk with joy in the midst of all of the pain and suffering that will 
come our way at some time. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and praise you for your mercy and your grace, for the love that you have for us. In truth, O Lord, there's so much that we don't understand, and often we are tempted to ask why. And yet you don't give explanations. Perhaps if you did, we wouldn't understand. But we marvel because you do everything well, O Lord. And how often we have seen things happen that have taken us by surprise, that we've never anticipated, and yet you bring outcomes that are truly marvellous. We think about those early Christians in Jerusalem when the persecution came and they must have wondered, God, what's happening? This is awful. And they were scattered, running for their lives. And yet, wherever they landed, in Samaria and Judea, they began to share their newfound faith and so the church grew. That's your pattern, O Lord. And perhaps this evening there's somebody and they don't have an explanation for whatever they're going through. And oh God, we pray that you would draw alongside every heart and help us to look to you and to trust you. And may we know your joy. As we lean on you, Lord. So please lock into our hearts whatever has been of yourself. We ask it as we say thank you in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.